I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and a regular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts and a Regular Warfare Podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of a regular warfare. I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. This is Bill, and welcome to episode 11 of Chasing Ghost and a Regular Warfare podcast. The title of today's is The Three Strikes of the Match American Divorce 1775. A little bit of housekeeping. My email is cgpodcast at pm.me. If you want to get in touch with me and provide constructive comments, even criticisms and things like that. I just had a recent appearance with Scott Horton for two hours. That recording is available on YouTube and scotthorton.org. Just put in Horton in my name. You'll be able to find it. Uh, Today, just a little background, up until my deployments to Afghanistan as a contractor, up until 2012, for um, probably half a dozen years, I was an Appleseed instructor, starting at the bottom, making my way almost to the top as a shoot boss here in the uh, state of Arizona. Appleseed is run by the Revolutionary War Veterans Association. It is a marksmanship and history combine that provides a weekend of training and exposure to American history on that fateful day, April 19, 1775, which will be the topic of today's discussion at Chasing Ghosts. I thought it was entirely appropriate because it certainly wasn't a stand-up fight per se, and there are a lot of irregular warfare elements in it. So again, that's Appleseed, the Revolutionary War Veterans Association, if you want to look that up. And yes, for those of you who have inquired, I am working on putting up a website, but I have not done so yet. So I spent a lot of time in the past, and some in preparation for this particular episode to refresh my memory, but I read a lot about the what I refer to as the first American Revolution, the second one, of course, being in 1860. In this case, This one starts the fireworks on April 19, 1775, with the famous Lexington and Concord conflict. But that's not where it actually started. Where it actually started was the Cousins War, the French and Indian War, the war for British suzerainty and supremacy on the continent that started the fireworks, that is, in 1754 and ended ostensibly in 1763. In that interregnum between 1763 and 1775, when the shots were fired, shots heard around the world at Lexington and Concord on April 19th, what happened was not only had the British bested Spanish and French forces in North America and assumed the superior position in North America, but also the French and the Spanish had sworn that they would get their revenge for what they felt was not only a slight against their martial honor, but a colonial enterprise that they had been robbed of, and they would be instrumental between 1775 and the conclusion of the divorce in 1783 to wrest the American colonies from London and England. They would be instrumental in helping the American colonials do so 
absent French and Spanish support, that win would not have occurred, and the British control of North America would have still been in place probably until well into the 19th century. Well, that being the case, what happened between 1763 and 1775 is several things. History is complicated. Is lots of impositions, lots of taxes, lots of regulations, lots of discussions about home rule on the Atlantic seaboard versus London, lots of kerfuffles that occurred both legally and illegally, and the fleeing west from British suzerainty after 1763, the problems that that would cause with the aboriginal populations, the shifting alliances of the aboriginal populations. As with everything, you know, history is not about dates. History is about cause and effect. History is about unintended consequences. History is about second and third order effects that even the most able forecasters and prediction experts in history in a particular area, probably couldn't accurately predict what that would look like. So while I could discuss for hours what happened during the Cousins War, the French and Indian conflict from 1754 to 1763, which I will cover in future episodes, I will fast forward to April 19, 1775. I would urge everybody, and I will provide a sufficient book list for folks towards the end of this podcast or even during the podcast, and we will discuss what, uh, what are some of the academic and historical and historiographical underpinnings of the conflict itself, but what we're going to do because of brevity of episodes and necessity to save time of my listeners we are going to step in the time machine, go to April 19th, 1775, and we are going to discuss the first strike of the match. So, it's 19 April, 1775. And in Massachusetts Colony, times were hard. The colonial government had been abolished, and a military governor, General Thomas Gage, controlled Boston under martial law. By the way, I urge all of you to have a map in front of you while I'm discussing this, if possible. But if you're driving, please don't do that. Boston was practically a ghost town. The Port Act had seen to that, as the port had been closed to all traffic for months. The town slowly died without commerce, and many of those remaining in town relied on the kindness of outsiders to acquire food necessities. Troops destroyed buildings and their contents for firewood. Disease was rampant. The king was bent on breaking the radicals and bringing the colonies back in line where they would pay dearly in taxes and subjugation to the motherland, the UK in this case. And he was close to doing it. The precedent had been set, of course. In order to subjugate the colonies, England would have to disarm them. The colonies had a long-standing custom for militia, and the militia was armed. The most expedient method of disarmament was to take their ammunition. Gunpowder was typically stored in a specially built powder house for safety in communities, and drawn for the militia when needed. It was a simple matter to march in and take the colonists' powder supply. And they had indeed done it before. In September of 1774, they had marched swiftly into Cambridge and carted off 250 half-barrels of powder, hauling them back triumphantly to Boston. Of course, this had so alarmed the colonists that within 24 hours, there were nearly 30,000 men on the march to Boston. Hearing rumors that the Brits intended to burn and shell the town, the incident ended without bloodshed. But General Gage, 
pent up in Boston with barely 3,000 troops, had been so frightened that he asked the Crown for an additional 20,000 men. Paul Revere, a member of almost 22 committees of correspondence, which were Sabrosa and covert organizations that were trying to make the connected networks and association matrices put together to get ready for the war that everybody knew was coming, he swore that this would never happen again, that they would not be taken by surprise and instituted the Committee of Observation, an elaborate spy network and espionage network throughout the colony. Then they began to smuggle arms and powder and hide them in various remote locations. They'd even stolen four brass cannon right out from under Gage's nose, a theft not taken lightly by General Gage. Then in December, Paul Revere had ridden more than 20 hours straight through a blinding blizzard. He was quite the rider to warn the colonists in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, that a British patrol was on the way by ship to confiscate their powder and ball. The Redcoats were met by a band of militia who raised the drawbridge across the river and simply taunted them. After a short skirmish, the British marched back to their ships empty-handed this time, but the failure stung the pride of the British and the British Army, and they yearned for revenge. Now the stage was set for another such raid, this time to Concord, where they would have the added honor of capturing not only the provincial government which had been meeting there illegally, but perhaps also the traitors Sam Adams and John Hancock, two of the very important cogs in the colonial subversion machine, who were destined, they thought, to swing from the gallows in England. There was also room to be quite a stockpile of war material stored there. The colonists had been forming an army, but as yet, it was only an army of observation, which was mostly sent out to shadow the British regulars when they made forays into the countryside, the lobsterbacks. This army consisted of three groups, the main body was a militia, mostly men from 16 to over 16 able to fight. The second body was formed by taking 25% of the young men best suited from the militia to serve as Minutemen, who would drop what they were doing and report with musket and ammunition on a minute, minute's notice. Those not falling into either category made up the alarm list and were tasked with spreading the alarm and supporting the militia. General Gage knew he had to operate in total secrecy for the colonists had an early warning system in place with spies in Boston and alarm companies throughout the countryside. He told no one of his plans to raid Concord, save his trusted General Smith and, of course, his American-born wife. This was to be his undoing. Now, there's speculation, of course, there's a parenthesis here, there's speculation, of course, about his American wife being a spy or loose-lipped to her American acquaintances and friends about what Gage was up to, but... It is lost in the mist of history as to whether she did that or not. So preparations began early on 18 April as mounted officers and men began to fan out about the countryside, countryside to gather intelligence and later to pick up anyone suspected of trying to warn the colonists of the impending raid. The townspeople in many places noticed something was afoot. First of all, the cavalry was dressed in uniform, so this wasn't just a Sunday ride in the country. Then there was the fact that high-ranking officers were present and they were not needed for a typical ride either. Also, the soldiers were armed, and this was typically forbidden. Sealing the deal was the fact that they remained in place or even rode away from Boston, even as darkness fell, when normally they would want to be in Boston well before dark to prevent their being attacked by radicals. So in Boston, 
around 10 o'clock, the soldiers were rousted from their bunks and began to assemble quietly in small parties on the green down by the water, where longboats had been placed to row them across the back bay. By 2300, they were standing shoulder to shoulder in the shallow flatboats and heading into the night, not knowing what their mission was. The Committee of Observation was very active at all this time, too. They noticed that a few days before, the British warships anchored in the harbor had lowered their flatboats to the water and had tied them all together as if ready to be deployed. This brought up an interesting problem for the colonists. Would the army march out of Boston by the narrow strip of land known as Boston Neck, then north and west, or would they simply row across the back bay and start their march five miles closer? They would need a way to get the word out as soon as the answer was known. Dr. Joseph Warren, prominent physician, was still in Boston, even though he risked arrest at any moment and was a leader of the Committee of Observation. He tried hard to divine the intent of the British that day, but could not. At last, he played his trump card. He went on a very dangerous mission to what he called, quote, an unimpeachable source for the information. Most historians believe, as I was talking about earlier, he was referring to General Gage's wife, who was known to have American sympathies. Indeed, after the disaster on the 19th, she would be packed up and sent to England never to see her native country again. The secret target would be conquered. They decided to send a rider out of Boston Neck, another from Charleston. Paul Revere would row across from Boston to Charlestown and ride from there. The signal for the riders was to be by lantern in the steeple of the North Church. One lantern if the troops left Boston by land, the longer route, and two lanterns if they were to cross the Back Bay. At 2200, it was obvious it would be two lanterns, and shortly thereafter, the famous signal was gone, was given. By this time, Paul Revere had made his way down to the North Shore and was on his way across the harbor to Charleston. Under the very guns of the British man of war Somerset, dressed in his long coat and riding gear, he had thought to leave his pistol at home, thinking it would not be prudent to be armed if he was captured. At some point, during this time and even before the American Revolution, armed riders could be summarily executed by British lobsterbacks if caught, especially during this time. As a full moon rose, they were concealed in the shadow of the skyline of Boston and made it undetected to the other side, where Revere was given a powerful and swift horse named Brown Beauty. William Dawes had departed Boston about 30 minutes before Revere, but riding a slower horse and taking the longer route, arrived 30 minutes after Revere in Lexington, and as such is awarded the usual reward for second-place finishers in history, obscurity. While Revere was riding toward Concord, the British regulars were up to their knees in the cold mud of the tidal flats and swamps of Lechmere's Point, struggling in that mud which swallowed up their shoes. At one point, they had to wade across an icy stream, Remember, this is April, but it's still Boston, and in some places up to their waist, while holding cartridge boxes and muskets over their heads. The wool uniforms were wet, itchy, and no longer white, but being wool, they were still warm. They had assembled and waited for over an hour for the Navy to deliver rations, but when they arrived, they were rotting and worm-infested and quickly discarded. All this combined to make the regulars normally in a surly mood, only that much more surly. After much delay, finally, around... 0200, Major Pitcairn, a Marine, led his 300 troops, the advance guard for the rest of the army, 
800 to 900 men strong, and the march to Concord began. Revere made good time, but quickly ran into a British mountain patrol and having the better mountain reverse course and quickly lost them. He made a circuitous route to the north to avoid the sentries placed to capture such riders and was making good time. He arrived at the house of the Reverend Jonas Clark, where Adam and Hancock stuck, where Adams and Hancock slept, about midnight, but the house was guarded by a detail placed there by the local tavern owner. Sergeant Monroe confronted Revere, telling him that he was making too much noise and he'd surely wake the sleeping parties inside. Revere replied, quote, you'll have enough noise before long, the regulars are coming out. Upstairs, the windows were thrown out and figures appeared trying to find out what was going on. Finally, Sam Adams recognized Revere and called him inside, where he gave them the warning that the regulars were out and that they should be on their way. Shortly afterward, William Dawes arrived and he and Revere set off for Concord. Now, a note here. It's famous, maybe Disney coined this, where Revere would be shouting or his confreres, the British are coming. They did not say the British are coming because they were British in the saddle at the time. They said the regulars are out. Soon after leaving Lexington, they encountered Dr. Samuel Prescott. He had been courting his girl, Lydia Mulliken, in Lexington and had in fact proposed marriage to her that very night. He was also a staunch Whig and radical, the family of doctors and radicals. He was happy to ride along and help spread the alarm, since he knew the people and the countryside very well. They soon ran into another mounted patrol, and in the encounter, Dawes was unhorsed, but escaped, and Prescott escaped on horseback while Revere was captured. The British officer, as is their wont, held a pistol to Revere's head, threatening death if he did not get the answers he wanted. Revere's thought to leave his pistol behind likely saved his life, for he had been around, and he would likely have been shot. He told the British officer that 500 militia awaited them in Lexington, and to go there would surely mean death. The skeptical officer was swayed immediately when he heard the report of a volley of muskets going off in the town. This was only the militia clearing their muskets before entering the tavern to wait for word of the arrival of the Brits. By the way, during this encounter, it is recorded that when that British officer placed said pistol against Revere's head, he said elegantly so, Sir, I crave your name. What is it? To which Revere revealed who he was. So deciding he should warn his commanding officer, this officer relieved Revere of his horse and set out into the night. Revere began to walk back to Lexington. When he arrived, he was startled to find that Sam Adams and John Hancock were still there. They hurried to escape, leaving in Hancock's gilded carriage. Hancock was very wealthy. After Revere saw them safely on their way, he returned to the Jonas Clark house to rest. When sometime later, a man named John Lowell arrived and told Revere that Adams had left a large trunk upstairs of Buckman's Tavern. And, of course, inside the trunk were papers of the proceedings of the Continental Congress with names, dates, and places incriminating those men, all for the taking of the coming British. They had to get that trunk out and away from the British, who were nearly there. Both men struggled to lift the heavy trunk and made their way across the green at Lexington, even as the militia was assembling there to meet the regulars. Meanwhile, Dr. Prescott made good his escape, rode into Concord, sounding the alarm. The regulars are out. All along the way, the Redcoats could hear the alarm bells ring, muskets and alarm guns being fired far ahead. They knew there was no chance of surprise, 
but this did not bother them. Only a few months before, Major Pitcairn had boasted that with two companies of grenadiers, grenadiers and the British Army being the tallest soldiers and selected that way on purpose, he could march the length and breadth of the continent, completely subduing the colonies. General Gage had said that there was not a man among the colonies that was capable of taking command or directing the motions of an army. They said that the colonists were fit only to be beasts of burden, hauling the baggage of the army, or clearing the woods and building fortifications. Major Pitcairn led the column with 300 soldiers. He had heard the report of 500 militia at Lexington, and after hearing the volley of musketry, ordered his men to halt, load muskets, and fix bayonets. He expected a fight. In the town, the militia waited. They were led by John Parker, a thin, sickly man of 46, struggling in the latter stages of TB. He would not live six more months, but Captain Parker was a soldier, experienced in fighting from his days with the Army and the French and Indians Wars, the Cousins Wars, from 1754 to 1763. He commanded what was called a training band in Lexington. Neither militia nor Minutemen, they had remained independent. They ranged in age from preteens to men in their 60s, and only the older men had combat experience. Parker had sent out two riders to find out if the English, where the English were and return with word. One had come back and said there was nobody on the road, that it was all just a false alarm. This had caused them to stand down, discharge their muskets before entering the tavern, and that was the volley the Brits heard. But shortly thereafter, the second rider galloped up, shouting that the regulars were indeed on the road, and in fact, were just a half-mile outside of town and coming at a fast pace. Parker had his drummer, a boy named William Diamond, sound the muster and quickly had his men stream back onto the green. It was about 0530. And the first rays of light were lighting up the countryside around them. They soon assembled in two lines, some 70 men, all locals, many related, brothers, cousins, uncles, fathers, and sons. They were formed up in the green, facing the fork of the road, in an aggressive military manner, so that there was no doubt to the oncoming troops that they were standing their ground and that to pass, the Brits would have to deal with them directly. Parker told them to stand their ground and not to fire unless the regulars fired first. But if they mean to have a war, he said, let it begin here. Behind them, Lowell and Revere labored with a large trunk, heading for the woods west of town. Soon the Redcoats came into root end of view, bayonets gleaming in the dawn's light. It must have been a sight for those 70 or so men standing in the green while 300 of the king's best troops in the colonies bore down on them. Major Pitcairn, at the head of the column, ordered them to divide and surround the militia on three sides, then rode up to the men and shouted, and I'm not going to burden you with my very bad British accent, quote, disperse ye villains, ye rebels, Lay down your arms and disperse, ye damned rebels, end of quote. At this, Parker ordered his men to disperse, and they had begun to do just that when a shot was fired. To this day, we don't know who fired that famous shot. Some say it was the accidental discharge of an officer's pistol. Others say it was a musket from behind a hedge or stone wall. The result, the, uh, result was carnage. The soldiers opened fire on the dispersing militia, shooting, shooting some in the back. Others, the older men who had experience, stood their ground and fired back. Two were shot down and bayoneted there on the green. The soldiers began to run amok, entering houses and shooting. Paul Revere, Paul Revere heard the first shots and also the balls whistling over his head. He and Lowell continued on their mission as the fight raged behind them. Finally, Colonel Smith rushed to the green and called 
for his drummers to beat down arms and got his men back into formation under control. On the green, eight colonists lay mortally wounded. Nine more wounded would survive. Of the eight pairs of fathers and sons on that green, five were separated by death that day. Casualties on the British side consisted of one slightly wounded horse and one unlucky private Johnson shot through the thigh. His luck would run out for good in a couple months at a place called Bunker's Hill, where he would be mortally wounded. Colonel Smith told the men of their mission, and for the first time, they understood the enormity of the task ahead. They tried to persuade him to return to Boston. They had lost the element of surprise, and they knew they had to run the gauntlet of militia for another five miles to Concord, and then the 18 miles on foot back to Boston. They didn't have the ammunition for a sustained fight, and they knew from experience how many men the colonists could muster at a moment's notice. Smith prevailed and allowed them a victory volley, three huzzas, and they began their march to Concord. Had nothing else happened, the regulars would have most likely marched into Concord, done their duty, and returned to Boston in triumph. There would have been inquiries, hearings, and they would have hanged a few traitors, and that would have been the end of the revolution. This first attempt to strike the match, which lit the fuse of revolution, had been made. There was a brilliant momentary flash, a little smoke, then the match extinguished. But five miles away, in Concord, armed men were stirring, and the match was being readied to strike again. The second strike of the match. So it's now 0645 in Lexington, and the sun is low but bright. In Concord, Dr. Prescott had sounded the alarm, and more riders had gone out to spread the alarm from there. Think of an oil spot spreading itself out over all of these colonial areas and the alarm going out. Prescott continued on to Acton, recall on the local leader of the Minutemen, Isaac Davis. Davis was a 30-year-old farmer with a wife and two sick kids. They had a rash that was usually fatal back then, and he and his wife were very distraught. But when he heard the alarm, he set out for Concord with his Minutemen, telling his wife to take good care of the children. In the town, a man came rushing from Lexington with the news of the fight on the green there. The men of Concord wanted to know if the British soldiers were firing ball or just powder as a warning. The messenger couldn't be sure, and this only added to the confusion at hand. By now, men from the area militias were streaming in from all parts of the country to Concord. Their forms silhouetted against the rising sun on the tops of the hills above the road to Concord. The British soldiers took note of this, one writing later that they moved along with a curious half-walk, half-run. And although the five-mile march went without a hitch, nervousness prevailed among the green British regulars. In the town, the militia leaders took stock of the situation and debated what to do. The younger Minutemen wanted to intercept the Redcoats outside of town, and the older experienced men of the militia wanted to stand their ground in Concord. The town elders wanted to wait for more men to arrive before committing. All in the British came. British regulars. Banners were flying and fifes and drums playing. Soldiers marked in perfect ca- marched in perfect cadence, making for quite an impressive display of military might. The younger Minutemen marched out to intercept the yet unseen army, but just as quickly about faced when they saw them just outside of town. Witnesses said that it looked like a parade, with the militia just in front of the regulars marching back to town. The militia continued through town and across the North Bridge until they concentrated on their muster field about a mile north of town a place called Punkatasset Hill. There they stood in formation waiting, and for what, they did not know. Other militia began to assemble with them until their numbers grew to over 500. 
In the town below, Colonel Smith had his men separate to search for contraband. He divided his troops up, grenadiers to search a town, one company to guard the South Bridge, seven more would go to the North Bridge, where two would guard that bridge, two companies, while the other five companies went to the Buttrick and Barrett farms in search of weapons. In town, the troops began to break open houses and search for war materiel, but weren't having much luck. They had found a few hundred musket balls, some flour, a couple of gun carriage wheels, and some trenchers. These are like a wooden plate. They also cut down the town's liberty pole and piled it with the contraband in the common and began to burn it. Major Pitcairn had reason to suspect that the owner of the inn and town jailer had hidden a pair of cannons somewhere in the area and meant to find them. He kicked in the door of the inn and when the man refused to speak, placed a pistol to his head and demanded the whereabouts of the guns. The man then led them to the guns, two 24-pound guns, which were too large to hide, and the soldiers knocked the trunnions off the pieces, rendering them useless. Colonel Smith had, aside from the cannon, come up dry for all his efforts. Even out at the Barrett farm, the soldiers found nothing. This was because the day and night prior, the locals had plowed fields and placed the muskets in the furrows and covered them over. The unsuspecting Brits had marched past the freshly plowed fields, never knowing what a valuable crop they held. Up on Punkatasset Hill, the militia watched all this and waited. When they saw the smoke rising from the town, they thought the Brits had put it to the torch. At last, one man asked, quote, Will we stand here while they burn our homes? End of quote. Colonel Barrett at last decided to march to the bridge and placed the Acton Minutemen in front because they were the best equipped, having both cartridge boxes and bayonets. When asked if his unit would lead the march, Isaac Davis replied, I have not a man who is afraid to go. Down below, in front of the bridge, the British soldiers watched as the militia, outnumbering them four to one, began to move down the hill towards them with a much military precision. The Green regulars were ordered back across the bridge, where they formed up again, using a formation meant for street fighting. This would be a concentrated column where the men were column deep, but had a very low, low width of frontage. This was not a much practice formation and caused a lot of confusion among the men. The formation was very narrow and deep, intended for clearing mobs on narrow streets. They would have the front ranks fire, then peel off to the rear to reload while the next three ranks would fire. This continued, allowing a constant fire in a narrow area, but it was not suited for open warfare and made a very nice target. Colonel Buttrick told his men the same thing Captain Parker had only a couple of hours earlier in Lexington. They should not fire unless fired upon, but should stand their ground. They marched down the hill in line of battle, and when they got close, some of the redcoats began to fire without orders, then a ragged volley was fired. Isaac Davis went down immediately, a ball piercing his heart. For once, the order of the Americans was better than that of the British regulars, and they held their formation, gaining ground all the while until finally arriving only about 50 yards in front of the bridge. Major Buttrick shouted, Fire, men, for God's sake, fire as fast as you can. And with the first volley, half the British officers went down. Shortly, the line broke in confusion, and the Redcoats ran back down the road toward Concord, the wounded streaming slowly back as they could manage. This left the American colonists a bit stunned and wondering what to do next. Buttrick divided his men, placing half on the Concord side of the bridge behind a stone wall, while the rest remained on the other side. Colonel Smith was shocked to see his men running back into town Palmell, and upon advancing to seeing the large number of militia in strong positions, withdrew his men to town. 
A young man named Ami White, who was mentally unfit for duty with the militia, walked down to the wounded British soldiers and, taking his hatchet, split a soldier's skull, leaving him to die there, partly scalped, with his brains exposed. Now, this, of course, would have many second and third order effects that would cause a lot of grief this day and the next. The raiding party came back from the Barrett farm at the sound of the fight and was terrified at what they found. Between them and the rest of the army was a large band of militia controlling the only way home, the North Bridge. They rapidly ran across the bridge and were allowed to pass unarmed by the militia, who were still operating under the long-standing requirement of having to be fired on first before returning fire. Many of the Redcoats took notice of their dead and wounded comrades lying on the field, most especially the man brained by Ami White. They were angry at the atrocity. Rumors ran as fast as they did, and soon the story went that four men had been butchered, eyes gouged out, noses and ears cut off. This was to change the tone of the fight and cause many atrocities that day and scandal as far away as England. Still, the various militias were streaming into the area by the thousands, many looking down at the British troops from the hills above town. In town, Colonel Smith was reforming and resting his troops and forming them up for the long march ahead. Those officers who were wounded were placed in borrowed carriages while the walking wounded were to go behind them. Then the army would proceed. The entire operation in Concord had lasted barely four hours, and finally around noon the British began their return to Boston under the watchful eye of the Americans who were spoiling for revenge. At first the militia simply shadowed them, watching and waiting for an opportunity. Many were swept under the way by the flankers Colonel Smith had placed in advance to keep the militia beyond musket range. Again, the match to light the fuse of the revolution had been struck. Again, there was a bright flash, a little smoke, and nothing as the match extinguished. Had nothing else occurred that day, there would have been inquiries, hearings, hangings, and promotions, and the revolution would likely have died then and there. But about a mile outside of Concord, at a place called Miriam's Corner, American militia were pouring in, and the match was again ready to strike. The third and final strike of the match. It's now shortly after midday and the British have begun retracing their steps back out of Concord and back to Boston while the Americans watch from hilltops and behind stone walls along the way. British soldiers were spoiling for revenge for their fellow soldiers allegedly butchered at the North Bridge. The Americans sought revenge for the massacre at the Green and Lexington. Many had walked all night and they didn't do so just to observe. The stage was set for a fight and a long one at that. Hundreds of men lined the hilltops above the road back to Boston, muskets loaded, ready for a fight. Colonel Smith and his men saw them there and knew they faced an 18-mile-long gauntlet with sparse ammunition. He sent out flankers to keep the Americans back out of musket range from the main body. They had already cleared one hilltop and a few farm fields, and things were going well for about a mile. But then they came to Miriam's Corner. This is about a mile east of Concord. The road turned slightly and crossed the stream by a narrow bridge. The flankers were forced to come down from the hills and walk along the stream to the bridge, which allowed the Americans to get within musket range. By now, they outnumbered the Redcoats by over 1,000 men. The British rearguard took notice of all this, and when pressed closely and seeing a few militiamen raising their rifles towards them, they turned to fire a volley, and immediately the militia opened fire. Balls rained down on the Redcoats with fury. The third attempted strike of the revolutionary match was made, and this time it blazed forth and burned brightly to go on through almost nine years and end in 1783, with 
the divorce official at the Treaty of Paris. Lighting the fuse on a war of independence. It was nearly 1300 now, and the running fight to Boston had begun. From here on, the British would be forced to fight their way out of one American ambush after another, often in deadly crossfire. In the smoke and confusion, Colonel Smith had no way of knowing that the Americans had grown in number to the thousands. As the Brits marched along, they continued to encounter fresh men with full cartridge boxes while they could find no rest or shelter or even water, and each round wasted was precious. At Brooks Hills and the Bloody Angle, the Brits took more casualties, but on they marched. And then we have Parker's Revenge. So it's about 1345. The men of Lexington had not retired after their fight, but had regrouped and marched toward Concord also. Now they stood behind a stone wall, some of the bloody bandages they had worn since daylight, waiting for the British and revenge for their fallen comrades. Captain Parker had his men wait until they were well within range, then gave the order to fire. They rose and gave a volley two times before the stunned British could effectively react, and the road was littered with dead and dying British regulars. Before the flankers swept them from the field, Captain Parker and the men of Lexington had their revenge. Colonel Smith was shot through the thighs he rode on his horse, and Major Pitcairn was unhorsed but unharmed. His luck would run out in a couple of months at a place called Bunker's Hill, as I'd mentioned earlier. Shot in the head by a Negro militiaman as he entered the fortifications there just minutes before the battle was over. The Brits were running low on ammunition and water. Some of the fiercest fighting occurred around wells, streams, and even puddles of water. The road was filled with dead and wounded men and horses in the accoutrement of war. Knapsacks, cartridge boxes, muskets, hats, jackets, bayonets, and even the items looted from the homes of American colonials in Concord. It was beginning to look like the end for the British, and the men discarded equipment and ran toward Boston. This was not a retreat. This was a rout. The officers could not maintain order, even at the point of their swords. They hadn't even made the five miles back to Lexington, and surrender seemed likely, and ironically, most likely, on the Green and Lexington, where they attacked less than 10 hours earlier. General Percy arrives. Then, as they stumbled into Lexington, it was as if a miracle had happened. Before them was a relief column led by General Hugh Earl Percy, arranged in line of battle and with two cannon trained on the advancing rebels. Percy could not believe his eyes. A formerly proud British army stumbled bleeding and beaten through the ranks, exhausted and spent. Percy placed his cannon, one on each side of the road on hills overlooking the approach in town. The colonials had never faced big guns before and were halted immediately, but Percy was still in a precarious position. He had left Boston about 9 o'clock, 0900, with his column and two guns with only the ammunition stored in the boxes on the carriage and no reserve. This meant he would have to keep up enough fire to keep the rebels at bay, yet ration it for the long trek back to Boston in an organized retreat. His men had carried the same 36 rounds of musket ammunition that Smith's troop had, troops had brought, and so his men were short of ammunition also. Percy took stock of his situation. He realized that he was not facing bumpkins in small numbers fighting from behind trees, but very large and well-regulated militia, which were acting in concert and fighting in coordination with other units. A quick note, that term, well-regulated, which we find in the Second Amendment, doesn't mean regulated by the government. It means coming to the war, ready to fight with all of your equipment intact and knowing what to do with it. 
He burned three houses in Lexington to prevent their being used for sniping by riflemen of the militia, one of these houses being that of Lydia Mulliken, the new fiancé of Samuel Prescott, who we had mentioned earlier. What he didn't know was that there was a man arriving on the field about that time to command the colonists who hadn't spent a day in combat, but had devised a means of fighting a moving column of regulars. This was one William Heath. Brigadier General William Heath was a self-described corpulent, balding gentleman farmer who had a passion for military tactics. He saw the coming conflict as inevitable for years before and had studied on his own at Henry Knox's bookstore in Boston and even engaged British officers in conversations on tactics and had come up with a plan to fight under just such a situation as now presented itself. He called it the Circle of Fire, and it entailed a constant streaming of fresh men and supplies ahead of a moving column to keep them under constant, unrelenting fire from all sides. It was a difficult tactic to pull off, keeping militia units coordinated and constantly in motion with ammunition, food, water, and supplies arriving at the right places at the right time, especially with inexperienced troops, but it will prove very successful on this day. Percy's cannon had held the colonists off long enough to give Colonel Smith's troops a much-needed rest before they resumed the 13-mile trek back to Boston. So it's now 1515, and the first units of British soldiers move out for Boston, now reinforced and about 1,600 strong under the capable General Percy and sporting two very dangerous cannon bringing up the rear. Flankers were put out to sweep the rebels from the flanks and keep them out of musket range. Still, the circle of fire took its toll, and all along the road, the regulars fell with regularity. No pun intended. By 1630, the Brits had reached Monotomy, present-day Arlington, and the fighting became less open and more house-to-house. -house. The fighting reached a murderous pitch, with the regulars seething to get at the rebels who would not stand and fight, but also to revenge their fallen comrades who had been savagely butchered at the North Bridge. The militia wanted revenge for the killings at Lexington and Concord and the burning and the looting of the towns. When the regulars received fire from a house, they rushed the house, killing all those within, sometimes even non-combatants. Fighting in monotony was terrible, as told by the numbers. Forty redcoats died and over 80 wounded. General Heath's circle of fire ensured that fresh men with full cartridge boxes kept a constant fire on the Brits, who had no chance of resupply, and were nearly out of ammunition. Percy's intended route took him through the town of Cambridge, where there stood a bridge between the Charles River, their last obstacle before Boston Neck. Past the bridge was a very large contingent of militia with full cartridge boxes, freshly fed, watered, and spoiling for a fight. So it's now around 1730. Advanced units of the regulars found the militia had pulled up the planks of the bridge and neatly stacked them on the near side. They replaced the planks, the militia discovered this and pulled up the planks again, this time throwing them into the river. Percy was now caught between the anvil of the bridge and fresh militia and the hammer of Heath's moving circle of fire. He had to do something fast. Percy turned north just out of Cambridge and headed for Charleston, breaking through the circle of fire by sheer desperation. This caused a momentary shift in the balance of power there as the circle of fire had to be adjusted for the unforeseen turn. In the confusion, Percy's column broke through and made for the Charleston Neck, a narrow strip of land connecting that near island to the mainland. The Americans had one last chance. To the north was militia under the command of Timothy Pickering, and if he moved out as ordered, they could stop the British escape and the entire retreating column would be captured. Unfortunately, Pickering chose not to move out against the protest of his own men, and the British escaped to Charleston under the protection of the guns of the warship Somerset.
General Gage's battered troops at last collapsed in exhaustion on a knoll known as Bunker's Hill. General Percy noted the time as just past 1900. The raw numbers showed that Gage's 1,800 men had suffered 73 killed, 174 wounded, and 26 missing, nearly a 10% rate. About 3,500 militia were actually engaged and suffered 49 dead, 39 wounded, and 4 missing, for a rate of less than 2%. But what the statistics didn't show was that one of the world's best fighting forces had been beaten and decimated by a bunch of determined New England farmers. It was this determination that would see them through the long years ahead until 1783 and the end of this war. General Percy, who had boasted that he could subdue the entire continent with two companies of grenadiers, later wrote, quote, whoever looks upon them as an irregular mob will find himself very much mistaken. They have men among them who know very well what they are about, end of quote. And so it begins. What we had here were essentially irregular forces, as I have described throughout this entire podcast series. Of course, you had some experienced men among the American forces and militia and Minutemen and training bands and armies of observation and such. But for the most part, they were either veterans or folks who really had no combat experience whatsoever. Yet in this case, on this day, on these two days, they managed to best, which was arguably one of the two best armies on planet Earth, the French being the others. So I offer this as a really interesting exercise in not only how wars begin, but how much irregular forces can contribute to these very beginnings. And also to offer an observation that I had in discussion with some of my colleagues the other day. We were saying, what, what, who wins in a war? Well, one of the conclusions that I came to was that the war with the least incompetent forces will be the one that wins. One additional note, I am an inveterate reader. I like to read. And the time that I spent with the Appleseed Program and the Revolutionary War Veterans Association and teaching these marksmanship clinics and I probably did near 100 of them on, um, on weekends from the, uh, the mid-2000s until 2012 when I went on sabbatical, which happened to coincide with me going overseas as a contractor. There were a, a number of books, of course, that I read to really get a grasp of what happened then. David Hackett Fisher's book, Paul Revere's Ride. If you only read one book about the beginnings of the American Revolution, in addition to Kevin Phillips' book, The Cousins War, Religion, Politics, and Civil Warfare and Triumph of Anglo-America, which talks about the war from 1754 to 1763. If you just read two books, those are the two books to read. Read Phyllis' book first, and then read David Hackett's book second. But if you're really interested in what happened, uh, you can read The Day of Concord of Lexington by Alan French. You can read Tortolo's book, Lexington and Concord. You can read... Uh, let's see, there's a number of others. There's uh, The Battle Road by Charles Bradford, Boston 1775 by Brendan Morrissey. Um, let's see, Redcoats of Rebels by Christopher Hibbert. Uh, the American Revolution began 19 April 1775 by William Hallahan. I love John Galvin's The Minutemen, The First Fight, Myths and Realities of the American Revolution. Those who want additional book recommendations or such, uh, be, be sure to write me at 
cgpodcast at pm.me. Be sure to write me anytime with questions, comments, constructive criticism, that kind of thing. Uh, another book that's slightly out of character with, uh, with what we've been talking about today, but I think is really important, is a great book by Larry D. Ferrero called Brothers at Arms, American Independence and the Men of France and Spain Who Saved It. Because remember I mentioned early on in this podcast episode that if it weren't for the French and Spanish, I'm convinced that the American colonials could have never bested London's forces and the imperial forces during this eight-year conflict culminating in 1783 with the Treaty of Paris. He describes in really interesting detail the, the sheer amount of support, martial experience, materiel, logistical genius, and all the rest that the Spanish and French gave to the American colonials because of the revenge they sought after being bested by the British in the Cousins War. So with that, I'd like to uh, make sure that you guys listen to the two-and-a-half-hour interview I had with Scott, Scott Horton. That's scotthorton.org. He runs a libertarian institute. He writes at uh, antiwar.com. And Scott Horton, I think he's got nearly 6,000 interviews or something like that. And also email me if you wish. Yes, I do have a website and train, and it is not complete. So with that, I will bid you adieu until episode 12 in a fortnight. And thank you so much for listening. This is Bill out. <laughs>